Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to localjobnetwork.com radio. I'm your host, Tim Yuma, and you're listening to Government Compliance, where we take federal contractors and subcontractors through the current trends of affirmative action planning, equal employment opportunity, and Office of Federal Contract Compliance programs. Now, today, as always, we have expert Sandy Ziegler, a recognized authority on federal EEO enforcement with 25 years of experience divided equally among the EEOC and the OFCCP. Sandy, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, good morning, and thanks for having me. Now, we did want to talk to you uh, because you did write an article recently for the OFCCP Digest. Basically, can you just start us off a little bit by what that was about? Um, obviously, we're talking about Executive Order 11246, an amendment to that specifically. But just fill the listeners in on what this entails and the reasoning behind its addition. Well, on the July 21st, the president uh, issued an amendment to Executive Order 11246 which is the executive order that requires non-discrimination on the basis of race, sex, national origin, color, and religion. Well, he's added two more bases to that executive order, basically by just plunking those two down into the executive order in the list. And those two bases are sexual orientation and gender identity. And it is part of his efforts to do by pen and phone things that aren't going through Congress. There has been legislation dealing with equal employment opportunity and equal opportunity generally for the LGBT community, that's lesbians, gays, transgender, bisexual community, mm-hmm. uh, that hasn't actually gone through. So I guess this is a part and parcel of that. There have been a lot of pressure from uh, groups that he takes some action in this area, and apparently he decided that this would be one of those things that he would do by executive action. So now federal contractors uh, that would be covered by the executive order for all the other bases, also add into that coverage that prohibits discrimination and requires affirmative action on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, what I thought was curious as well is, is there evidence already to suggest that many contractors and employers are already voluntarily prohibiting these discriminations that we're talking about that are being added here as an amendment? Well, according to the uh, Department of Labor website, quite, uh, quite a few of them are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they cite that the 50 largest federal contractors, which according to DOL represents half of the federal contracting dollars, 86% of them already prohibit sexual orientation discrimination and 61% prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender identity, which actually sounds like the, the problem that they're seeking to address, which is to make sure federal dollars don't fund discrimination on these bases, that federal dollars really weren't, for the most part, funding discrimination on these bases, at least according to these figures. Right, right. Now, as we look at this as a, as a topic, uh, what do you see that would be the initial challenges that federal contractors would face in simply trying to add, again, quote unquote, sexual orientation and then gender identity as these new categories? What are those really those challenges that will pop up initially? Yeah, well, you know, what I noticed looking at it is that the mechanism that they use was basically, as I mentioned, to plunk these two categories right into executive order language, Mm -hmm. which would suggest, at least to me, that then the whole construct of enforcement that's associated with the executive order would now be applied to these two categories. It doesn't really sound, when you just add it in, that you're going to add a whole different set of mechanisms for enforcement for these two new categories. It sounds like whatever mechanisms for enforcement were already there are now going to be applied in these two categories. Now, if that's the case, that's to me where the challenges come in. Because although they're, according to the DOL, that a lot of companies have policies that prohibit discrimination on the basis of these statuses, what they would do and what the executive order requires 
are two really different things. It's not like these companies, as far as I've ever been able to see, actually do exactly the same thing relative to affirmative action and non-discrimination for LGBT that they do for these other categories, such as race and gender. So whereas you may have companies that make it their policy to be inclusive, that don't allow people to express animus against these particular categories or withhold job opportunities because you belong to these categories, the way the executive order gets enforced is really a whole different kettle of fish. So I think from the perspective of uh, someone trying to actually implement executive order processes to these categories, they're going to run into really a really good big issue about the data. Right. Because if you look at uh, executive order enforcement, a lot of it is very data-driven. And there are a number of challenges that are, that are associated with data anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to enforcement, even under the traditional categories, contractors' main troubles occur with record-keeping and, and their failure to collect and use properly the data that they do collect. So I think in this arena, there's going to be a, a great need to know, you know exactly what data do you expect me to use and uh, how do you expect me to use it. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because that was a question that popped into my head. And I'm sure anyone who will read the article will feel the same way. Is just the idea of where can the relevant and necessary data and information be found to be able to really properly analyze this? Because as you mentioned, you know, these are two very specific classifications. It might not be something that has been documented a whole lot. So, I mean, do you have a do you have an idea or a general sense of where that data can be found, if at all? Well, I think there's going to be a number of challenges when it comes to that, because as far as I'm aware, and I have looked, there's not <laughs> the kind of data that you, you're looking at in the executive order. It's usually, uh, like, for example, if you're talking about hiring engineers, you'd want to know how many men, how many women are out there with the requisite skills in the reasonable recruiting area that could have been part of this hiring experience that's going on as contractor. Right. Well, you know, a lot of times that's done by job groups. So, you know, we'll look and see, you know, in the, maybe the, the white collar jobs, they may have professionals. And so you look in that group or you look in uh, management, you know, those various uh, layers of that, or you may look for, you know, laborers or whatever. And that's all broken down by race and gender. Well, there is no comparable data set that breaks it down by sexual orientation. But even before you get to the data sets, one of the things I think is going to be an initial challenge is a uniform understanding of what exactly are you meaning when you say sexual orientation or when you say gender identity, because there are a number of issues that come up in terms of how people would interpret that and whether the behaviors, in fact, there was a whole thing about separating behaviors from self-identity, from attraction. If you ask the question in a variety of ways, you get different numbers in terms of who puts themselves in those categories. So if you ask if a person identifies with the LGBT community, you may get a whole different set of figures than if you ask, have you ever had an experience, a sexual experience with someone of the same gender? You would get a whole different group of people because people don't always identify in certain ways. And then, uh, so narrowing down what exactly do you mean and what do you actually have to ask in this context? And then you also have the problems, as I saw, if you're asking about gender identity, the whole point of gender identity was to get at the transgender discrimination. Okay. But if you ask a person what's their gender identity, it's going to read to the average Joe. It's the same question as what's your gender. You know, so you may not get anywhere in terms of getting extra data. And that data, I think, will be even harder to collect than the data on sexual orientation, which is hard enough to collect because it's not really been out there. Right. Uh, they still haven't even resolved census issues about, you know, how do I get reliable data in this area to just know 
who in the country identifies, let alone whether they're in a particular job group. Right. So as you can see, <laughs> the challenges are going to be there uh, until these things get sorted out. It's exactly what are you asking a contractor to get, to do, to collect, to follow, you know, in terms of their, their data responsibilities. And another issue I think is going, to be, is going to be important in this particular arena, with most of the executive order invitations and self-identifying, there's not really a confidentiality issue. Okay. You know, but there will be, I do right. think, in this area because of people not wanting to be stereotyped and people not wanting folks to get in their business. <laughs> you know, people, uh, you know, having all kinds of concerns about, uh, you know, identifying in a certain way. And I was reading an article uh, about uh, the willingness to identify as a member of the community. And that actually varies across ethnic groups. So a lot of the data that you get are about white LGBT people, but it's not necessarily about minority LGBT people because they may be less willing to identify, uh, you know, and less active in some of these these organizations mm-hmm. that are more well-known. So you've got a, a host of issues in just getting reliable self-identification and protecting that self-identification. Now, there's a bit of a model in protecting self-ID information, I think, in the disability arena. Okay. But I'm not sure, and this is a question I have, and, and I, we'll see how it plays out in the real world, if they can just import some of those ideas into the executive order where they've never been before. Because if, as uh, it looks like, you're supposed to be here expanding already existing protections out of the executive order to LGBT and trans, you know, gender identity issues, then how can you just you know, pick out a whole different mechanism for enforcement than is available to any of the other categories under the executive order? So I think they're going to have to work that out about whether you can just import certain uh, ideas from, say, you know, the Section 503 into a new scheme relative to just these two categories. Yeah, it clearly sounds like the there's maybe a lot of work to be done, even with trying to figure out the the labeling, quote unquote, you know, for lack of a better term there. Um, and I, I am intrigued by the fact that you brought up there are these subcategories almost among, you know, different cultures in terms of identification. I think that's a, a very poignant uh, idea that you bring up there that uh, that definitely exists. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but contractors can use what are called post-employment records or visual observations as far as obtaining, you know, again, the gender information. Now, that's just gender. But can this actually work in the case of gender identity? Because as you mentioned, that's more about self-identity. Can a contractor, though, look and say, well, I'm going to identify them as this or that? Does that you work? You look or? like you might you might be gay. I mean, yeah, I and that's what I'm saying. Like, that's- it, Right, right. That's not going to fly. Exactly. I, I cannot see that. <laughs> I can't see that being allowed. I mean, they, they, the whole trend under even the traditional categories is not to impose an identification on someone if they identify themselves otherwise. Right. When it comes to the visual, I don't think you can look at a person and tell. I mean, you know, you might be able to tell, what, you know, have some surmises about it. Right. But, you know, to, to put a person in that category Without their consent, I can't see that being something that the government would want to encourage contractors to do. That's basically inviting them to engage in stereotypes. Exactly. This is what I think someone in that group looks like, so I'm just going to plunk you in there regardless of whether or not you want to identify that particular way. So I think that is just not going to be practical. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then with the gender identity issue, I mean, if you've transgendered, you're going to say to somebody, I think you might have been born assigned to a different gender than what I'm seeing, you know, what I'm, what you're presenting as. Are you, how can you do that? Right. I mean, I, I don't think that would be appropriate at all. And, you know, if you were a candidate and somebody's classifying you in a way that you don't classify yourself or you decline to classify, you don't want to be 
pigeonholed into some category, then I don't see protecting the worker as being consistent with forcing them into categories that they don't put themselves voluntarily in. And I think that's going to lead to another problem, which is that you may have under underreporting if people are concerned mm. about you know, whether this is going to be used to actually advance their employment opportunities or whether this is a way to know who to discriminate against. So you may have people who just opt out sure. or they feel like it's none of the employer's business, so they opt out. And if the person doesn't self-identify, traditionally, if they can't know and there's no reasonable way of knowing, and I don't think guessing is a reasonable way of knowing, <laughs> then that affects how the analyses are done and what analyses the contractor is expected to do. Because usually, if you can't be sure, you know, what category the person goes in, you kind of put them over to the side and you'd run your analysis based on the ones who you have an actual positive identification of. Sure. Well, if you, if you do that in this area, your numbers that you're going to get are going to be shrunk even more. So does that mean that then the contractor doesn't have to do the analysis because there just aren't enough people who, who are self-IDing? Or, you know, how are they meant to do it? Because usually you, got, you have to do an organizational profile, for example. You sell every department and you break it down by the, the race and gender. Well, you're going to break down your whole workforce by their sexual orientation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, it just doesn't fit. You see what I'm saying? That's, right. This is where, even though they say there's this large percentage of contractors who already prohibit discrimination uh, based on uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, I don't think the way they go about it has it bears any relationship to the normal executive order methodologies mm-hmm. for either affirmative action or discrimination. And that's where I say the devil's in the details, because it's easy enough to put two words in. You know, you do a word search, and everywhere you saw gender, you stick sexual identity and uh, uh, I mean, gender identity and sexual orientation right. after it, and okay, we've got the executive order amended. But when it comes to writing a regulation, you need to provide the contractor with much more than that in order for them to understand what exactly do you want me to do that I'm not already doing. Right, right. Well, and you, you raise a number of issues that can come up from that and that there's maybe a, too much assumption being made. And that's what I wanted to touch on as well with uh, the idea of sexual orientation. Of course, I mean, that's a very personal item. And you can obviously argue that race and gender are personal as well. But um, when you get into this sort of arena, do you think this is actually a positive step? I mean, just from your experience, from the information you have, is it a positive step to be potentially asking about sexual orientation or is it a negative one? Does it open it up to too many issues versus more solutions? Well, when it comes to uh, protecting a person who's been discriminated against in employment on a basis that has nothing to do with employment, the, the extension of protection, I think, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you want to make sure that you, there aren't barriers in working or getting jobs or how you progress in jobs based on something that absolutely has nothing to do with it which I would argue your sexual orientation has precious little to do with any job I can think of. Right. So that, but the, tr- the challenge is that you don't want to stigmatize people. You don't want to violate, invade their privacy. You don't want to give ammunition to someone who might have animus against the group by targeting, you know, like making it easy for them to find the group to target. So I think there are some actual uh, issues that need to be thought through uh, in order to do to, to approach this area in a way that's not going to have unintended negative consequences. Right. So, uh, I mean, from a th- pure theoretical point of view, yes, it's you know, it, it, it makes sense. It makes a, a lot of sense. People have been lobbying for it for a long time. But it hasn't happened because there are a lot of these practical issues that haven't truly been resolved. So I think there, that the agencies, as well as the, uh, the people who are going to have to actually implement this stuff, need to have a, a 
serious conversation about exactly how this should go, as well as we intend to protect the community. Because, you know, what you may think if you don't work in a company would seem like it makes sense, may not make sense if you actually had to do it yourself. That's right. the, always the challenge of regulating. The regulators may never have worked in the private industry, and the people in the private industry may not, you know, be in the you know in, in any mode of you know, how regulations actually work, and then you have the protected community who may have a laundry list of things that they've wanted for a long time, but the most vocal people in that community are the ones that may talk to the government about it, whereas there may be a host of people who also belong to that community who have a completely different take on the matter. So trying to make sure that you don't do any harm, like they always used to say, do no harm. first do no harm. Uh, you don't want to do any harm while you're trying to, to address this uh, unaddressed problem. I think you bring up a great point that in theory or, or on paper, it, it seems to make a lot of sense. And, but in practical use, it, and there are a lot of challenges we brought up and difficulties. Now, if they wanted to move forward with this and say it is going to go through officially, um, for lack of a better term, can they put certain restrictions in place or exceptions or do they have to follow all the same types of regulations that are along with the, you know, the executive order to begin with? That, that, I think, remains to be seen. Okay. It's going to be. I mean, when I sit here and think about it, we're talking internal data collection. How, you know, who, who will identify themselves right. this group, and how can I use that data? But then you also have the external data collection because you don't have that uh, census data that breaks this all down in the ways that, that uh, race and gender data are broken down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- those kinds of, uh, of challenges are out there. And what usually happens with affirmative action is that you have to have an affirmative action program that you uh, submit to the government when they send you a scheduling letter. And in it, you're supposed to have, uh, you know, a whole host of analyses, all of which are driven by the presence of this data. So, you know, you, you, you have to have, uh, you know, placement for incumbents, setting goals, organizational profile, job group analyses. How are you going to do any of that if you don't have the data? So sure. I think one of the things that needs to be clarified is are you as a company expected to make an effort to do that? In other words, are you supposed to go through and change all of your systems to include a column for sexual orientation and gender identity? And then how do you populate those columns? Is the government going to give you a uniform definition of what these things are? Or is everybody supposed to assume if you put those words there that the people filling out the forms will know what you meant? Mm-hmm. So I think there are a lot of in- enforcement challenges ar- around that. And I-, I do think it's incumbent on the government, frankly, to make it clear how much of the executive order construct that companies are very familiar with do they really intend to have apply to sexual orientation and gender identity. Because one of the things that I, I know as a former government employee, we don't always have a clearest picture of is how small things, like even adding columns, headings to uh, systems, and collecting additional data, how the, what the cost is of that, hmm. regardless of the ultimate utility of the data. So you, know, you say, well, okay, let's just put that in there. As a government person, you think, okay, they just have to add a couple of words. Right. But there may be significant costs to the company. And one of the things I'm hoping will not happen is that to the extent there are effective processes in place in the private industry, that, as the DOL suggests that there are, uh, that they don't wind up having to draw off resources to do things that are of marginal or no utility just because, you know, the, the OFCCP wants to have done something as a result of this executive order. So hopefully, they, you know, there won't, there won't be a thoughtless implementation or a ignorant implementation. Now, ignorant, not in the sense of, you know, being disparaging of the government, but I just don't understand what this involves. Right. You know, one of those kinds of things. It's, right. it's easy enough to tell me to do it, but I got no clue what's involved. <laughs> so I, I think that it's important not to require things that don't really get you closer to the goal of the uh, of equal opportunity 
for both of these categories. I think uh, very fair points brought up there and um, something that we all hope they'll be talking about and discussing further moving forward. Now, you do make a key point in the article that says the amendment of that executive order requires the Department of Labor to, and this is the, the big word, prepare implementing regulations in 90 days from the date of the order. Why is that significant that the verbiage there is to prepare implementation? I noticed it because I uh, was one of the co-authors of the uh, original ADA regulations over at the EEOC, and it required us to actually issue okay. within the, the time frame, which meant that this had to be in the Federal Register and gone. Mm. Whereas prepare, you can prepare something and not actually have an issue. Right. And when you think about all of the, the issues that we just talked about, you know, where, where are contracts expected to get the data? How many of these uh, traditional elements of affirmative action are required? Are there going to be substitute elements for those, you know, to, for affirmative action since it doesn't look like you're going to get the volume of data? How they're going to resolve all that in 90 days, you know, kind of seems unrealistic, sure. frankly. <laughs> I, I think that they may put something in place, but I, I don't see it being the end of the story. It would be challenging to issue this stuff in 90 days, right. I think. I mean, you look at they, when they were going to issue regulations on veterans and disability, where they've had coverage for years, look how long, how many times they missed the deadline for issuing that. <laughs> so it's not, you know, I'm, I, and I'm not being uncharitable and thinking that they, the odds are that they may prepare something, but it may be a draft or two or three or four away from actually something that there's uh, enough agreement on to, to actually issue it. And then in the current political climate, I do think there's probably more scrutiny of how executive agencies are carrying out their regulatory responsibilities because of that whole issue about how much of this is stuff that can be done simply through regulation, how much of it should have been done through some kind of legislation. And can we take legislation like the uh, Rehabilitation Act and the Veterans Act and just import those principles for two new categories put in under the executive order when you didn't, you didn't amend the regulations or, or the statutes over there, right. uh, uh, can you just import a whole nother enforcement scheme? Because the way, like I said at the outset, the way this was done was just to set these two in the executive order. And there's a history of how that order has been enforced. So to put two new categories in as if they're just, uh, you know, meant to be treated like the other categories that are already there, and then create a whole other enforcement scheme that's totally different from any of the other categories, I think may open you up to some degree of challenge. So although they have to prepare this in 90 days, or at least that's what their deadline is, contractors may not actually see uh, a, a result that'll give them an idea of what they need to do next right. uh, for a while. Well, you know, you do such a great job of breaking all that down and, and really raising important questions and issues that might arise. So I think some people listening might be thinking, all right, well, if we're asking you, the expert here, what's your overall impression in terms of how contractors then should be thinking and acting right now? Because as you said, maybe there's some preparation for it, but you have a hard time seeing it, you know, getting actually implemented that quickly and it might be a while. Do you suggest they start doing something particular? Do, is it a wait and see kind of proposition? What would you offer up? Well, I think uh, given the way the executive order actually works, there are a couple of areas where the enforcement might actually line up. And okay. one is policies. If you have a policy uh, that looks like it treats, uh, say, for example, uh, benefits for same-sex couples differently than benefits for heterosexual couples, you know, those kinds of things. If there's, if there's some way to make that clearer as you're going through, I think looking at your policies to see, what, you know, do we have something that on its face, or as we, as we actually implement it, appears that it might treat 
sexual orientation differently or gender identity differently. So examining your policies is probably a good thing. Figuring out what kind of policy language you want to have, you don't happen to have a, uh, a policy that addresses these two categories, you may want to spend some of this time figuring out how do you want to add it to uh, you know, the, the list of categories where you're guaranteeing non-discrimination and affirmative action. So I think some of those things might be helpful. If you have had complaints, you may want to look and see, has your company ever had complaints where someone feels like their sexual orientation or their gender identity has resulted in some kind of discrimination? Look into those. See where your potential problem areas are. What I don't usually suggest is that you make an expensive change to your system Mm -hmm. before you have to because if you change it and then the government comes up with something that's totally not at all like what you changed it to, then you've got another expense of now retrofitting everything again. So uh, as far as changing your uh, data collection systems, those I don't think I would uh, actually carry out. You may want to look and see what would be involved if they, if they added these categories. How much would it cost you? That kind of thing to get a sense of what may be down the road. And also an opportunity maybe to make input, uh, you know, when if there's an outreach or an opportunity to weigh in on how the regulatory uh, changes changes should be made. So finding that information out might be useful because a lot of times the government will make these estimates of what it's going to cost for their regulations to be implemented, and the contractor's perspective of what it's going to cost may be way different uh, than what the government is. So you may want to look at that so that when you get an opportunity to weigh in, that you have some concrete evidence that, you know, here's what doing what you're asking would, you know, likely cost my company. Perhaps here's another way uh, that we could get at the, you know, the heart of the problem, at least as far as we can now, without running these extra expenses. So I think those may be some productive things to do uh, while you await uh, the regula- regulations from uh, OFCCP. Yeah, I think I think those are terrific practical pieces of advice for those that are, you know, might be curious or might be wanting to, you know, prepare. Um, aside from the um, actually changing any systems, but uh, I think diving into your policies and checking on any complaints or issues ahead of time, I think a uh, terrific piece of advice from somebody who obviously has a tremendous amount of experience. On that note, we are going to wrap up this edition of Government Compliance. Of course, as always, we thank you, Sandy, for coming on, sharing your insights, your knowledge, experience. Um, it's very helpful for our listeners, and we do appreciate you coming on. So thank you once again. No, you're welcome. And of course, we want you to continue listening to LJN Radio for all your latest employment-related programs. As always, if you have any comments or questions, go ahead and email us at ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. For everyone here at LJN Radio, I'm your host, Tim Muma. Thanks for listening. <laughs>